Greg beat me to it in terms of the team. Uh, people ask me each year, how in the world do you put these teams together? Uh, because it seems like each year we have a different team and it uh, gels in a different way and the uh, speakers play off of each other in different ways. And uh, I just, uh, I'm going to say this in very uh, shameless fashion. Uh, all three of the other speakers graduated from Dallas Seminary. So the proof is in the pudding. That's what we produce. That's what we do. And we were talking about it today uh, with our family that I never have to worry when uh, these men get up that they're going to be tethered to the text. Uh, we believe it from cover to cover. All of his words are true, the Bible says. And if it's a living book, think about this. For those of you who wonder, if it's a living book, as the Bible says, there can't be any dead parts. So inerrancy has to hold. Otherwise, you have dead words. Just a thought to take with you. Uh, I want to do a couple of things uh, in remembrance. Uh, that's just stock photography. I have no clue who the little guy is. <laughs> but I didn't have Mark's, Mark's uh, you know, younger daughter, uh, or the daughter, uh, to uh, go by. But uh, that, that brings some memory to our minds from this week, doesn't it? Take, take that image with you. <laughs> Two minutes at least. Somebody asked me, if you have an electric toothbrush, how long is it? <laughs> at least the same. Just because of who does it, doesn't matter. Just Right, dentist? The dentist? Doctor? Okay. Here's another one. How many taste buds? Yeah, 10,000. Then I saw this being going down the street today. <laughs> All of these imageries are connected to the truth that we've heard. And so I, uh, I, the men who uh, spoke, you and your wives being here this week, means a whole lot to Barbie and me and uh, to us and all of us who are here. So uh, from my heart to yours, thank you for taking the time, the prep time, the family time, and the time away. We all hit the ground running this next uh, week as the faculty workshop starts on Tuesday. I'm not yet ready uh, to address our faculty for the 19th time. And so I appreciate your prayers for the next couple of days. And uh, we hit the ground running then with student orientation and classes start a week from Tuesday. And uh, we're off and running, but uh, with, with a good week. Uh, Steve was sharing a picture of his family. Some of you ask about ours. Uh, some of you know the... Uh, the oldest uh, couple, uh, Josh and uh, Emily, who are here uh, with their three last year uh, doing the music, and Jeremy and Callie are our younger couple, they have two sons, and they have uh, the little ones. Uh, all those that are in the denims belong to the oldest one, and the others belong to the youngest one. And uh, Jeremy and Callie are up there on the stairs with little Bo Charles, and he, we call him Bobo, and I think now he thinks his name is Bobo. And, uh, but uh, he can't pronounce his brother Finn's name, so he calls him Bubba. I'm Baba, so there's Bubba and Baba, you know, and uh, Ai for Ollie, and so he's just learning to talk, and we're having a blast, but they, they both live uh, near us, and uh, we all go to the same church, and uh, so uh, tonight is another performance of a concert that my son is leading at our church, and my uh, other son, the younger son, is a football coach, and so two a day started, you know, a week and a half ago, and so we'll be sitting in the stands on Friday night as we go back little word about the seminary for just a moment. Uh, we are uh, getting ready to uh, build 
a brand new chapel. Uh, Chafer Chapel was built in 1952 and uh, on a very poor foundation. And so after all these years, uh, we wanted to rebuild Chafer Chapel, but it would take as much to rebuild as it would to replace it. And so we're, we're going to call this Chafer Chapel, but it's going to be rebuilt. Uh, those of you who know anything about the campus, if you don't, don't worry about it. But that's our whole square in downtown Dallas, a 10-story uh, apartment complex with married students, a seven-story apartment complex with single students. And uh, then uh, where the yellow box is, that's where that uh, building will be placed. And it'll seat uh, 500 uh, it cost uh, that plus doing, doing the renovation of all the blue buildings that we just have on this picture was about a $14.5 million uh, price tag. And uh, we have raised, by the grace of God, $14.5 million wow. uh, this last year. And so we're ready to build, and uh, we build debt-free. And so uh, uh, God has been gracious, and uh, we deeply appreciate it. But this will be uh, the new building inside, big, big uh, gathering space for our students. It'll be a chapel and a student life center, with student life offices on one wing of it, a uh, 500-seat chapel uh, with movable chairs on the inside, but some uh, fixed seating on the outside, and really it's going to be a gorgeous, a gorgeous facility. So we're grateful uh, for that. Uh, Jonathan, uh, who uh, was the first timer here, we sort of put him through the paces uh, because uh, uh, newcomer hazing, we uh, uh, gave him more speaking than some of us had. Uh, we put him on weird times. Uh, we had him pray at different times. Uh, so uh, between his schedule and uh, his accent and his stories, uh, we uh, want to say welcome to the team, Jonathan. Where are you sitting? Where are you? Okay. Way back there. But I just have to correct one thing you said this morning, Okay. And it might be something caught in translation, but you, you, you said that the Titanic didn't go down very well. I think it went down pretty well myself. <laughs> Not really well, but uh, it went down. It went down. Let's pray. Father, we're here uh, this week to celebrate your faithfulness in our lives, in the lives of biblical characters, biblical history, human history, to celebrate your character that is uh, unchanging, uh, no shadows are caused by your change of mind or activity, and while you are the same yesterday, today, and forever, uh, you get sweeter to us and better to us as we get to know you better. And Lord, we, uh, we want our lives to uh, magnify you and we magnify something to make it bigger so that we can see it better. And that's what we want to have happen as a result of our time together this week. That we would know you better and be able to tell others about you better and uh, model our lives after you better because uh, you are faithful and your faithfulness is great. Your mercies are new every morning and we so desperately need it not just every morning, but throughout the day. Thank you that you've transferred and transformed your throne from a throne of wrath to a throne of grace for us. You've invited us to come boldly into your presence where we can find grace and mercy and help. So I ask for that help this evening as we uh, tackle a fun but not an easy subject. It's being so uh, maligned and misused 
And so I pray, Lord, that uh, you would help us see your word and take it for what it says and adjust our lives to it rather than adjusting your word to our lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. God is faithful to keep his promises to Israel. And uh, we could spend weeks and weeks in this area. Uh, Barry introduced us to uh, living uh, from the end and uh, looking forward to the end and changing the way we live in light of the end. And we're going to come back around that just a little bit. But I I want to... uh, uh, introduce you to two books, and uh, this is not a shameless plug because we get no money from it. We've already gotten uh, our deal, but uh, Mark Yarbrough and I both had the privilege uh, of contributing to a book called Israel, the Church in the Middle East, that was spearheaded by Chosen People Ministry, and Mitch Glazer and Daryl Bach, who was uh, on our staff, were the editors, and each of us have a chapter, and a whole bunch of others have chapters that relate to uh, the nation of Israel how it relates to the church, and uh, both in uh, ancient times and in modern times, and what should we think about that. Another book that just came out uh, a little over a week ago uh, was another uh, book that I had a privilege of contributing a chapter. Uh, this was uh, under the auspices of the, or the instigation of Jews for Jesus, and so uh, both uh, Jewish organizations have helped contribute to a book uh, this last year. It was called, What Should We Think About Israel?, and, uh, and this, again, is written by about 20 or 25 different scholars. Uh, some of them are our uh, grads, uh, some others uh, who are not. But uh, these are two books that uh, I would recommend to you. Uh, we each got uh, a little bit for writing our chapter, and we get nothing else. So it's, uh, nothing is going to come to us if you buy it or don't buy it. Uh, but I would recommend them just because of the quality of the rest of the writers and, uh, and would recommend those to you. Uh, the glory of, uh, of God, excuse me, the glory of God's faithfulness, Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, is that no sin of ours has ever made him unfaithful. Let me say that again. The glory of God's faithfulness is that no sin of ours has ever made him unfaithful. In fact, that passage in the epistles, though we are faithless, he remains what? Faithful, faithful. Uh, If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to the book of Zechariah. Zechariah is in the white portion of most of our Bibles, which means we don't get there very often, and it's not smudged. And it's toward the end of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. And uh, I want to give you the big picture of Zechariah. Then we're going to focus on two chapters in Zechariah, because one of those has the statement that relates to the faithfulness of God as it relates to his plans and purposes for his people Israel. And so Zechariah 1 to 6, uh, with an introduction and a conclusion, has eight night visions. Uh, night visions, that, that had to be one wild and crazy night. Uh, you know, all on one night, uh, the angel, uh, being the mediator between God and Zechariah, gave him uh, eight different visions. They're interconnected. They're a beautiful set of uh, episodic, uh, you know, uh, visions that uh, go together literarily, but each of them are separate, like an episode. It's sort of like a series on television where one episode stands alone, but it fits into the bigger series that has common themes. And so it's a, it's a great section, but highly visionary a literature where angels are speaking and helping interpret the message to the prophet for the people of Israel. Uh, in the post-exilic period, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi are the three post-exilic prophets. And so Zechariah, along with Haggai, comes on the scene to uh, stir up Israel to rebuild the temple and to revive the people. 
uh, as a remnant comes back after the captivity uh, to uh, uh, Babylonia. Uh, in the middle of the book, chapters 7 and 8, there are four ethical messages. Four ethical messages. This is easy to remember because it goes uh, 8, 4, and 2. You have two burdens, two prophetic oracles in 9 to 14. And so in the middle section, you have four passages that begin with the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying... And, uh, and we're going to dice into that in just a moment. But in the latter part of the book, we have two prophetic oracles, Masa or Masim in Hebrew, uh, which means a, a, heavy, a heavy burden, a heavyweight message. And the first uh, two chapters, uh, or excuse me, 9, 10, and 11, the first three of these final six chapters, is uh, an oracle against the nations that have messed up with Israel and have messed with God's people. And God's not happy. In fact, the book begins that I was upset with Israel, but I'm ticked at the nations because they're fat and sassy. They're at ease, which means they just think they're, you know, uh, taking it easy. And so uh, that introduces this whole section. But when you come to the last section, you have a major burden against the nations. And then you have a major burden in 12 to 14 concerning Israel and especially the city of Jerusalem. Uh, if you break down that middle section, uh, Zechariah 7 and 8, as we said, there's four times that it says the word of the Lord came. But there's 10 times where it says, thus says the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts is the most uh, popular name in the post-exilic for God. Uh, we sing about it when we sing a mighty fortress, and there's a little phrase in a mighty force, uh, fortress that says, Lord Sabaoth, his name from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. Uh, Sabaoth is not Sabbath, like the Sabbath day. Sabaoth means that he is the, the Lord of hosts, the Almighty, the, the Lord of the armies. And as you study that phrase throughout the Old Testament, uh, he, he's the Lord of the armies that, uh, that, that fights for Israel, uh, but he's the Lord of the armies that disciplines his people, Israel, and he's the Lord of the armies that will one day revive his people. And in, so in the post-exilic books, you have a concentration of this name. In Greek, it's uh, Pantocrator, uh, Kurios Pantocrator. Kurios is Lord, and uh, Pantocrator comes from every, Panta, and Krateo, which means to hold on to. So it's the Lord who has his hand on everything. He is the one who is in charge. And so in a post-exilic period when Israel is coming back, needing to be revived, but there's a near view and a far view of what God's going to do with his people, they need to know that he is the Lord of hosts. That was the one to whom uh, uh, Joshua was introduced to at the battle uh, before Jericho. And he's the Lord who uh, has his hands on Israel. He has his hands on the nations, and he is going to fulfill uh, his purposes with both. And so... Uh, in these 10 statements, we're going to fly through them very quickly. So uh, just look at chapter 7, if you would, and we're going to walk our way through these very quickly. And this is all introduction, so hold on, okay? God scattered Israel. If you go back and read chapter 7, it begins with uh, the people are saying, should, you know, uh, they, they fasted because of the destruction of Jerusalem. And then uh, they put a, a whole bunch of other fasts together. And so the Lord says, well, when you were fasting, were you fasting for me or for you? And when you have a feast, are you feasting for you or are you feasting for me? And basically he brings a message of conviction in the introduction. And then he begins to address it with these statements. Thus says the Lord of hosts. 
And in chapter 7, 9 to 14, I want you just to catch this because this sets the tone for our whole evening. Thus says the Lord of hosts, and he's talking to Israel through Zechariah, render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, don't miss that, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. Boy, would that change our culture. But they refused to pay attention. Watch these terms. They turned a stubborn shoulder. Hebrew is very graphic. They, 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 they rebelled, and they, so they just cocked their shoulder around. They stopped their ears that they might not hear, and they made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words of the Lord of hosts. Now, watch this. Here's the word of the Lord of hosts, sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Great statement on inspiration. God speaking through the prophets to the people by the spirit of God. Therefore, great anger came from the Lord of hosts. And I called, and they wouldn't hear. Now watch this. So they called, and I wouldn't hear. You know, God's a pretty just God. If you don't want to listen to me, I don't want to listen to you. Judge not, lest you be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you yourself will be judged. He said, as I called, they would not hear. And when they called, I would not hear, says the Lord of hosts. And I scattered them, watch this, with a whirlwind among all the nations that they had not known. Thus the land they left was desolate, so that no one went out and fro, and went to and fro, and the pleasant land, watch this, the pleasant land, as it's called, was made desolate. Now, all of that for the first of these 10 statements. So he gives you a big mouthful on statement number one to say, God was upset because Israel didn't listen. God has sent them into captivity. He's dispersed them among the nations, and uh, he's not a happy camper with them. And so uh, the land, the beautiful land, becomes a desolate land. That's number one. Number two, and we'll fly through these a lot quicker, God is still jealous and zealous for his people Israel and for the city of Jerusalem. I'm going to let you read along. I'm not going to read all these passages because this is all introduction. Jerusalem will be called a faithful city. That hasn't happened yet. And the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. But God is jealous and zealous for his people and for the city of Jerusalem. Number three, both the old and the young will one day live securely in the city of Jerusalem. Old men and women, elderly women and men, uh, and children, they're sitting in the streets, and the children are playing in the streets in utter safety. That's never been the history of Israel thus far. But it will one day. They're in verse 4 and 5. Number 4. Number 4. The restoration of Israel may be marvelous surprise that they and the Lord will both enjoy. In essence, he he's, he's basically does a rhetorical question. You think that's great? What do you think I think? You know, it's marvelous that, that of what God is going to do in uh, restoring his people, Israel. It's going to be a marvelous surprise to a lot of people, and the Lord is going to enjoy it as well. This ought not to be a surprise that God would and could do this, in other words. Uh, number five, God will bring his people back from all the directions that he has scattered them which is a sign of his, guess what the word is? Faithfulness. See, God is faithful to return and restore his people, Israel. Now watch what he says. I will save my people from the east country and from the west country. They weren't taken to the west. 
in the Babylonian captivity, nor the Assyrian. Those were both east and northeast. So this speaks of a bigger dispersion in the history of Israel. And I'll bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I'll be their God. Remember, that is a statement that's ultimately made in the new Jerusalem. But we're going to watch it when it's made in history before it's made in eternity tonight. I'll bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they will say to my people, I, and, and they, they shall be my people, and I shall be their God, watch, in faithfulness and in righteousness. Number six, God has promised to restore Israel and Judah to their land with his covenant blessings. This is earthly. This is not heavenly. It's a time of peace that's promised. The vines will produce. The ground will produce. The heavens won't withhold their rain. And they are going to be people back in possession of what God originally intended them to possess. Number seven. Just as God disciplined them for their sin, when restored, he expects them to live with the fruits of righteous obedience to be demonstrated in their lives and in their relationships. Truth, justice, integrity, and honesty are what God requires. And so he says, when I bring you back and when I put you in your land, this is how I expect you to live. High expectation. This is covenant faithfulness that matches the covenant blessings that you have in 6 and 7 here. Statement number 8. The fast, he says, for Israel's discipline will be turned into the feasts of joy and love and peace. They're going to feast because of what God is going to do in their midst. And so the question of do we keep fasting, and they added fast after fast after fast that God never commanded. Only one fast. Are you ready for this? Only one fast did God ever command his people, and that was on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, that they were to fast, they were to beat their chest as a sign of repentance, and they were to mourn for their sinfulness because God had made a way for them temporarily to be right with him through Old Testament sacrifice, looking forward to Calvary's love that we just heard about. The only one sacrifice that could take away sin. Only the death of Christ can be expiatory. I'll give you another theological word. Propitiation was in that hymn. We were joking here and Dick said, uh, name me one other hymn that has the word propitiation in it. It's a great theological hymn. It was one of Chafer's favorite terms. He would say back in those, in those days where only men were in the classroom, men, God is satisfied. God is satisfied. Because propitiation means that Christ has done everything necessary to satisfy the just demands of a holy God so that God could not only judge sin but could extend salvation to the sinner by grace through faith in Christ alone. That fast then, he says, will be turned into feasts. Whatever fast you want to create, whatever fast you want to invent, beyond the one commanded, he says, all that's going to turn into a time of feasting, of love and joy and peace. Number nine, there's going to be an international revival. I love this. The Bible teaches that there's going to be an international revival of people flocking from all over the world to Jerusalem. Sort of like a dotted line connecting the dots and inviting others to come. Now watch this. Peoples shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities, 
So we're not just talking about heavenly Jerusalem here. We're talking earthly context from many cities all over the world. The inhabitants of one city will go to another saying, let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord, to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. In other words, here is one on the the hand or the shoulder of another coming to faith and coming toward the Lord. Verse 22, many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of the host in where? Where are they going to come to seek the favor of the Lord? Say it. Jerusalem. Jerusalem, in order to entreat the favor of the Lord. See, God has a plan for earthly Jerusalem on the way to heavenly Jerusalem. Let me say that again. God has a plan to fulfill his promises with regard to earthly Jerusalem on the way to him fulfilling the ultimate promise on the way for us in the heavenly Jerusalem. Number 10. Israel will one day ultimately fulfill their role as a light to the nations. Look what will happen. In those days, what days? When there's an international revival of people coming to Jerusalem. And we're going to say, why are they coming to Jerusalem? That's in chapter 14. We'll get there in just a moment. In those days, 10 men from the nations of every tongue shall take a hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, let us go with you, for we've heard that God is with you. See, at the international revival, 10 people grabbing one Jew and saying, take us to the Lord, because we know God is at work in your midst. Now, these are 10, thus says the Lord of hosts. Let me ask you a question. Which of those are you going to not believe? Which of those are you going to say, that's dead stuff, that's not the living word? I don't don't need to deal with that one. I want to encourage you, and uh, I can say this and then run because I'm done. Okay, no. You need to read through the prophets, and it'll not be easy reading, because God is going to use Israel, watch this, God is going to use Israel in the disciplining of other nations in the similar way that God used other nations in the disciplining of Israel. And that doesn't look pretty on either side of that one. And it's going to be just for a sovereign God to mediate out his judgment through human beings, both discipline as well as temporary discipline on the road to final judgment, as we see in the book of Revelation. Well, all of that are 10 things that God has promised that he finishes up that middle section with. The difference between the first section being visionary and very highly pictorial, this is more sermonic kind of literature, and it's thus says the Lord, it's just preaching and predicting what's going to happen. The last six chapters of the book, 9 through 14, are pretty purely predictive kind of prophecy. What's going to happen in the future? When I first came to Dallas Seminary, they assigned me the post-exilic prophets and the gospels for my first course to teach in three hours, three credit hours. The assignment that I gave to the students back then, and I don't, they, they, they restructured the curriculum a little bit so we don't have those together anymore, but I asked the students to uh, assume the book of Zechariah was the only book in their Bible and to just inductively lay out everything that God promised that he would do in the book of Zechariah. And when you lay that out and in essence say, what's the future that God has predicted in Zechariah? There's a lot of prophecies that relate to the first coming and there's a lot of prophecies that relate to the second coming. And when you see that the the Messiah is going to get cut off, 
but he's going to reign forever. It's not hard to figure out which one comes first. And so you lay that out, and it's just it's, it's phenomenal just to see what God has promised. Just inductively, inductively. Work, work on it for yourselves. It's phenomenal. But this middle section, he says, here's 10 things I wanted to say to Israel. Thus says the Lord who has control of everything. Here's how I'm going to work with you. Here's how I'm going to work with the nations. When you come to chapter 14, turn there with me if you would. Zechariah chapter 14. We come to a uh, final chapter of that last oracle. And he says, behold, a day is coming for the Lord. When you study chapters 12 through 14, you'll you'll realize that uh, the phrase in that day, in that day, is found 16 times in that last oracle. Eight in chapters 12 and 13, and eight times in chapter 14 alone. So watch the setup, and let's take it sequentially as it comes. First of all, the siege of Jerusalem. The siege of Jerusalem. There's a promise of final restoration and a prediction of immediate warfare. Notice what he says in verse 1. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord. I'll come back and talk about that. When the spoil, now watch this, when the spoil that was taken from you will be divided among you. In other words, the spoil that Israel lost is going to come back to them and be divvied up among them. For I, God, will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. This is the big one. And the city will be captured, houses plundered, women ravaged, and half the city exiled, but the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. As God wants to work with Israel and bring a group of people back to himself, he's going to allow the nations of the world to attack Israel, especially centered in Jerusalem. And like all warfare that God allows to happen, and at times God initiates to happen, it's nasty stuff, as you see in these descriptions. Don't miss it. Here's where that, that my wife used to teach uh, geometry, and I've told some of you that before, and she had a geo board uh, in in grade school, not geometry, but and they they would make this geo board and use yarn or rubber bands around these posts, and you got a post over here and a post over here, and you have a creative tension, the sovereignty of God, the responsibility of humanity, the necessity of faith, and God's call of election. Those are biblical concepts that have to be held together. You didn't choose me, I chose you, Jesus said to his disciples. So you you have these things. Well, one of the pegs you have to put in your board and you sit there and go, ooh, is how God uses other nations in the life of his own people to try and get their attention and at times to discipline them severely. So don't read past this too quickly. I will gather And this was what will happen in Jerusalem. It's a day for the Lord in Hebrew, or a day called by the Lord. This is the big day of the Lord when he's acting on earth on behalf of heaven. That's the Hebrew expression. The picture here is of a multinational army assembling to attack Jerusalem. It's important to note that it's the Lord who gathers the nations. And his purpose is going to be to purify his people in tribulation, as he mentioned back in chapter 13, 8, and 9, but also to provide an occasion for the destruction. Now watch this. God can whistle for the nations 
to attack Jerusalem and then take out the nations that are attacking his people. You'd almost think he's sovereign. Think it. He's not almost sovereign. Listen to Joel 3 in this vein. Verses 1 to 5 detail this. He says this, For behold, in those days and at that time, when I bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem, I'll also gather the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. I believe that's in Jerusalem. They assemble at Megiddo, but come down to the valley of Jehoshaphat for the war. I will enter into judgment with them there on account of my people, my heritage, Israel. God whistles for the nations to come to Jerusalem, and then he's going to deal with both Israel for his purposes and the nations for his purposes. Micah describes the assembling of the nations against Zion and says that they will not really realize why they're there. In fact, it says, namely, to be sheaves on the threshing floor of God's judgment. In other words, they come to attack Jerusalem, and God says, thanks for coming. Now it's time for your judgment. Listen to it, Micah 4. 11 to 5, 1, and now many nations have been assembled against you who say, let her be polluted. Let our eyes gloat over Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord and they don't understand his purpose. For he has gathered them like sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, daughter of Zion. For your horn I will make iron and your hoofs I will make bronze that you may Watch this. This is biblical. It's not me. Pulverize many peoples that you may devote to the Lord their unjust gain and their wealth to the Lord of all the earth. While God is disciplining and purifying and bringing a refining fire to Israel, the nations attack Israel. They become plunder for the Jews and their stuff comes back into the purposes of God. The wealth of all nations will be gathered, he says, to the Lord of the earth. Jonathan was talking about it this morning. It's not ours, it's his. The wealth of all the nations is ultimately is his. And he's going to get it. Now watch, when you think about this and read this, these passages presuppose that there will be a Jewish nation centered around Jerusalem in the last days. Today, with the existence of the modern state of Israel, this doesn't seem to be terribly remarkable, but I want you to think about what it was like 500 years ago when there was no Israel as a nation. There were just Jews dispersed. It's not too remarkable to think about how God could bring Israel back into the land from what we see, but think about those Bible teachers who didn't have that view, who still had this view, that one day God would bring Israel back into existence and have Jerusalem be the center. And so today, it's not too remarkable, but it would have been prior to the 20th century. According to the context of Zechariah 12 to 14, as you read back through those three chapters, two-thirds of the land is perishing. One half of the city of Jerusalem will be taken captive. The remaining third of the country's population, you got to do the math, will be brought back through those events. This constitutes the chastening hand of God and the refiner's fire for Israel. And just when it seems like all hope is gone for the city of Jerusalem and the people of Israel, the Lord goes forth to fight for his people. This this term to go forth is a battle cry. And that brings us to verse 3 of chapter 14. That's the second coming. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. 
As God fought, Exodus 14, 14, and 15, 3, for Israel against the Egyptians, as he made a way through the divided sea, so he will now provide a way of escape for this group of people. Where? In Jerusalem. Specifically, watch this, the descent to the Mount of Olives. Look at verse 4. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem to the east. The the Middle Eastern map mentality was not north, south, east, and west. Everything faced east, and the maps were on their side. So in front of Jerusalem is toward the east, which is where the Mount of Olives is. Now, the Lord will visibly, physically reappear on planet Earth, just like the angel said he would in Acts chapter 1. This same Jesus, whom you have watched go into heaven, will so come in like manner as you've seen him go. How did, he, how did he come? Physically, visibly into heaven. How will he return? Physically and visibly. From where? Mount of Olives was the ascension. Where will he return? Hello? Mount of Olives. This accords very well with the Old Testament where it predicts the glory of God representing the very presence of God that had been removed from the city of Jerusalem in earth, on the earth by stages, moving first from the Holy of Holies to the porch of the temple, then to the eastern gate, and eventually to the mountain east of the temple, which was the Mount of Olives, only to be taken up into heaven. And now that glorious return of the Lord, with all of his glory, comes back to that same place. And you know what they're going to say according to Ezekiel? When the Lord comes back according to Ezekiel 10 and 11 and 43 and 48, When he comes back, it's going to say, and Yahweh is there. Yahweh Shema. The Lord is present. The Lord is present. Remember the presence of the Lord in the New Jerusalem that Barry talked about? There's a presence of the Lord that will return to physical Jerusalem on the way to ultimate Jerusalem. Jesus is going to touch down his feet on the Mount of Olives when he returns in all the glory with his saints. The armies of heaven are described in Revelation 19:14, And that glorious return to save and restore Israel to make the capital city the capital of his earthly kingdom. You say, where does that come in? Look at verse 4. The Mount of Olives will be split in the middle from the east to the west by a very large valley. So we have the descent to the Mount of Olives. Okay. Then you're going to see a description of the changes, and the mountain is, is split, first of all. Let's go to that, the, the split in the mountain, and part of it moves towards the north, part of it to the south, making a valley in the mountains, for a valley of the mountains will reach all the way to Azel. Guess where Azel is? Nobody knows. Everybody thinks they do. But if you were the Lord going to take the remnant of Jerusalem, the one-third that comes refined through the fire out and escape like the Exodus, and take them to a place of safety during this battle, I wouldn't tell you where I would take them either. And we don't know where Azel is. We just know it's east. They go through the Mount of Olives, and they take them all the way through that valley, and the valley of the mountain will reach to Azel. Somewhere east of Jerusalem, maybe down towards the Dead Sea, We're not told where it is. Yes, he just sort of says affirmative. And you will flee like you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah. The Lord returns, touches down, the mountain splits. Yahweh leads his people forth like Moses did through the Red Sea. Parts the mountain by the very act of treading upon it. 
You have evidence of an Exodus motif that continues, and the choice of the verb that talks about this mountain being split, are you ready for this, is the Hebrew word baka, which is the vac- exactly the same word used to speak of the division of the Red Sea for Israel to escape from the Exodus. So when the Lord wants to reconstitute his people, he takes them through another division, a split, and through the divide provides escape for them. That's the path of escape. Ironically, it says, the major fault line in the Jordan Valley runs north and south. Ironically, the seventh bull of the judgment in the book of Revelation in chapter 16 comes in the form of an earthquake splitting Jerusalem into three parts. So out of the seismic activity, a great plain will be formed from Geba to Ramon, north to south. Look at verse 5. Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. So here comes the accompanying army. The term saints and holy ones is used in the Old Testament to refer to both angels and saints. And the Bible in the New Testament says he'll come back with his holy ones, and angels and saints will return. We don't have time to go to some of those, but you can see it in Matthew 24. Jude 14 says, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his saints. He'll return with his angels and with all who have believed with him. And in that day, look at verse 6. Watch the other terms that will change. In that day, there will be no light. The luminaries will dwindle. For it will be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but will come about that in the evening time there will be light, and in that day living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea. Now watch this. And the other half toward the western sea. And in summer, it'll be summer as well as in winter. It'll be 72 year round. Well, that'll be a nice change, even from this week. Okay. Now, what's the point? This is not a vision of heaven, folks. Why not? There is no sea in heaven. There's no sea in heaven. There's no western sea and no eastern sea in heaven. There's a river, but there's no more sea. We heard about the other morning. The light, watch this, it can be the light of God without a sun and a moon. Just like in Genesis, you could have light without a sun and a moon. Before those luminaries were ever created by God. God can be his own light. God is light, and in him there's no darkness at all. That came out of another message this week as well. So you have the light and the night. You have the waters flowing from Jerusalem. You have the seasons will be constant. Listen to Joel. He predicted a day when all the streams of Judah would flow with full of water, and a fountain would come from the house of the Lord, Joel 3, 18. Ezekiel 47, I love this one, records the vision that may describe the same event. He foresaw a river flowing from the throne of God down to the Dead Sea. Notice it can't be a heavenly vision because there's a Dead Sea. But it brings life and vitality everywhere. And by the way, it says in Ezekiel 47 and 48, there will be fishing along the shores of the Dead Sea. So in case any of you are entrepreneurial and venture capitalists, I'm going to start a fishing uh, shack <laughs> along the shores of the Dead Sea, and you can invest any time you want to. No. That's what the text says. See, this can't be heaven. There's no sea. This has to be an earthly fulfillment sometime in the future where the Dead Sea is turned into living waters and fishing will be a part of the fun. See, God can reverse the curses on humanity anytime he wants to. This fulfillment is a description of the ultimate reign of Christ on earth. 
And it merges with the imagery of what will be the experience in eternity, as Barry was describing that concept of living back from the, from the end. Because in eternity, Revelation has the same kind of a vision of a river flowing from the throne of God. It doesn't go to the Dead Sea. It doesn't go to the Mediterranean. It's a stream lined with the tree of life, with the trees that have healing in its leaves. Most interesting and significant is that John, like Zechariah, connects the living stream with the reigning of Yahweh through his redeemed ones. And as I mentioned, and here's my thesis for the evening, he's going to do that in Jerusalem on earth before he ever does it in the new Jerusalem that comes down to the earth. That leads us to the Messianic kingdom in this passage. The Messianic kingdom. I want you to see it very quickly. It's, it, first of all, it's consolation for Israel. This, this can't be a heavenly kingdom again, as some would argue. Some of my friends who I dearly love but differ from me on eschatology because rebellion continues. That's not going to happen in heaven in verses 13 and 15. And the national historical distinctions in verse 16 remain intact in this passage. Those nations that refuse his rule and face and fail to worship him will suffer a plague. Verses 17 and 19. And at that time, Jesus will be king. Watch this. Not merely in Jerusalem, but from Jerusalem over the whole earth. And this ultimately gets the fulfillment of Revelation that comes on that seventh sound of the trumpet when it says, now the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Cha-cha-cha. He'll be regarded, as Revelation 19.16 says, as was prayed by our friend this, this evening, King of kings and Lord of lords. Why is this important? Because of the consolation for Israel. The Lord will be king over all the, say it. Oh, he'll be king over all the what? Say that again. Earth, thank you. In that day, the Lord will be the only one, in his name, the only one. All the, say it, land will be changed into a plain from Geba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem. That's the region north of Jerusalem and south of Jerusalem in Judah. It can't be a heavenly scene. It has to be an earthly scene. But Jerusalem will rise and remain on its site from the Benjamin Gate, as far as the place of the first gate, to the corner gate, from the tower gate of Benel, to the king's wine presses. People will live in it, and there will no longer be a curse, for Jerusalem will dwell in security. Just like we saw in chapter 8. Since the mountains around Jerusalem are in no need of a defense, they can be flattened into a plain. And by the way, this will be the first time in history that Jerusalem will really be a safe place to live. Global in its extent, over all the earth, exclusively under messianic authority. He'll be king over all the earth in those days. Located, centralized in Jerusalem. Notice the Jude and the regions are mentioned. The landscape has changed as a result of the seismic activity. The land from Geba, which is six miles northeast of Jerusalem, to Ramon, which is 33 miles southwest of Jerusalem will be made into a plain. If you've ever been to Israel, it's not flat. There's only one way in Israel it's up, if you've ever walked. That's the consolation for Israel of what he's going to do in Jerusalem. Then you have the condemnation of the enemies. Look at 12 to 15, and we're almost done. Now this will be the plague, which the Lord will strike on all the peoples who have gone to war against Jerusalem. Now watch this. Their flesh will rot while they stand on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongue will rot in their mouth. They'll lose those 10,000 sensories. It will come about in the day that there's a great panic from the Lord. He sends the panic. will fall on them. 
And they're going to seize one another's hand, and the hand of one will be give, lifted against the hand of another. He's, he's mediate, and he's immediate in his sovereignty. He can do it immediately by himself, or he can mediate it through others. Judah will also fight at Jerusalem. And the wealth of all the surrounding nations will be gathered, gold and silver and garments in abundance. So also like this plague will be the plague on the horse, the mule, the camel, the donkey, and all the cattle that will be in those camps. And let me ask you a question. Earthly seen or heavenly seen? Say it. Earthly. You bet. The rapidity with which this occurs may suggest hyperbole, but certainly God's judgment, whether spiritual or physical, is instantaneous in its administration and will be instantaneous in effects. It's covenantal. God will bless those that bless Israel. God will curse those that, say it, curse Israel. It'll be sovereign, whether immediate or immediate. It'll be just, the reversals, the plunder that will come back. It'll be total, people and animals. And that leads us then to the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles. What was the purpose of the Feast of Tabernacles? Was to, to celebrate God's presence among his people in the wilderness as a foretaste of God's ultimate presence among his people. Watch this. On earth, prior to it being in the new Jerusalem in eternity. Verse 16. Then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went up against Jerusalem will, not go, will go up from year to year to worship. Watch. They go up from year to year, to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. Now watch this. And it will be that whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. If the family of Egypt does not go up, then rain won't fall on them. If it will be the plague which the Lord smites the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booze, this will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that don't go up to celebrate the Feast of Booze. See, men and women, God has worked in Israel as a testimony to the rest of the world. And that work in Israel is blessing, it's discipline, it's judgment, until they come to understand that he's the only one deserving of worship and loyalty. And it'll be the truth for the future. What will it look like? Look at verses 20 and 21. The consecration of everything. Watch what he does. In that day, there it is again, eighth time. There will be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. We're going to come back and talk about it. the cooking pots in the Lord's house. Oh, oh, excuse me. The cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like the bowls before the altar. There has to be another temple to have the house of the Lord. There's no temple in heaven. God tabernacles personally. That's what Barry was teaching us from 21 of Revelation. But there has to be a future temple if there's going to be the celebration of the tabernacles and where there's going to be cooking pots with the house of the Lord. Every cooking pot in Jerusalem and Judea will be holy to the Lord of hosts. Notice, it's not just Jerusalem, but it's the region. And all who sacrifice, don't let that one bother you. Blood of bulls and goats in the Old Testament didn't take away sin. They anticipated Christ. What does our communion do? It doesn't take away sin. It celebrates Christ. Well, blow that up into a Jewish feast. What will that look like? With my Jewish friends, they know how to throw one. It's going to be the best smelling barbecue you've ever smelled in your life. Sweet smelling savor. Doesn't take the place of the cross. It celebrates Calvary's love. Notice this. Sacrifice will come and take of them and boil in them. And there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts in a day. 
By the way, just for fun, the word Canaanite here is the same word for money changer in John when he cleanses the temple. It's a merchandiser. Empor you in the Greek text. Now watch this. What's going to happen? Everything's going to be holy to the Lord. What was inscribed on the metal band in the front piece around the priest turban, holy to the Lord, is now even going to be on the horses' bridles. In the glory of the Messianic kingdom, horses won't be needed for war. Now they get to wear the emblems holy to the Lord. Consecration. Inside the temple, notice there's no temple in heaven. This has to be an earthly scene. The verses show animal sacrifice will continue, not for expiation, as we said, but for celebration. Outside the temple, in the glory of the Messianic kingdom, what was previously common is now made holy. The holy is holier, the profane is forever eliminated. And at the end of it all, there's no longer any distinction between holy and profane. It's all become set apart to God for his purposes. See, that's what Jesus is going to do in the kingdom. He must reign till he's put everything under his feet, all enemies under his feet. And the last enemy is death. And 1 Corinthians says he hands the kingdom back to the Father so that God can be all in all. Even my three applications, and I quit. Number one, you can trust God to finish what he started. You can trust God to finish what he started, to fulfill what he promised. You know what the name Zechariah means? God remembers. See, God remembers his covenant, and God will be faithful. You can be sure of God's will for your life now, as was emphasized all week, if holiness is your ultimate destiny, he also wants it to be your journey. If holiness is your ultimately destiny, be holy, be holy, be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. All the way through Leviticus. God wants us to match his character. If that's our ultimate destiny, then the journey needs to start looking more like the destiny. And God can, profane, can, can transform your life from the profane into the sacred to link all that we do and all that we are and all that we have for him. Colossians says, in the same way you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. I encourage you to go through and get a concordance, do a search on your computer, all the passages where it says God is faithful. We've just covered a few of them this week. We've just covered a few. I'll not repeat them, but let me read two passages Ezekiel 34 says this, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. There's a future, even for those saints who have died, to one day co-reign with Christ. In Ezekiel 36, he says, you will live, watch this, you will live in the land that I gave your forefathers, so you will be my people, and I'll be your God. That's an earthly fulfillment of God's faithfulness. Why is this important? Because if you can't trust God to fulfill his promises to Israel, you can't trust God to fulfill his promises to you. But if, since you can you know, trust God for his promises to Israel, you can trust God's promises to you. And Revelation 21.3 says, when the Lord comes, in the new Jerusalem, as we heard about earlier this week, then he will be God, and we will be his people. That's true in history, and it will be true in eternity. You can trust the faithfulness of God. Take it to the bank. Let's pray. Father, 
this is just water skiing over the surface of one or two chapters of your marvelous Hebrew Bible that talk about the future, what we'll be like in that day. We're amazed and we're humbled that you would go way out of your way to get our attention in grace. You go way out of your way in getting our attention through discipline. Because all temporary judgment is really an act of your grace to help us avoid eternal judgment. Your patience and your grace continue. Your long-suffering and your love is amazing. Help us not miss that. Thank you for the history lesson with your people Israel that gives us confidence that what you will do with us for all eternity is true. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.